just before we start, I would uh, like to pay my respects uh, to all the Aboriginal um, and Torres Strait Islander people uh, on this continent known as Australia. And in particular, I would like to honour and pay my respects to you know, the Aboriginal uh, warriors across this continent who gave the ultimate sacrifice uh, for us as Aboriginal people to be here today. So I'd like to, you know, pay my honour and respect to them. And the reasons why is because of uh, the podcast series. Uh, it is called Frontier War Stories. So I want to pay homage and respect to them. But then also honour and pay respects, hopefully through these stories, uh, to the living memories uh, and the living people who are related and descendants of these warriors uh, throughout the continent known as Australia. Uh, without further ado, you know, I would love to pay my respects to them as well. Um, one of the reasons I wanted to begin this podcast is because I love history and I love the history of our people, uh, the resilience, the resurgence that our mob have, you know, given over the last um, 240 years and definitely the, uh, the resistance as well. One of the reasons, you know, for the podcast is I think, you know, this is a very, very, these are very important times for our people. Uh, the, what is known as the frontier and also what is known as the frontier wars. Uh, these times have really shape us as Aboriginal people, but then also the relationship we have uh, with non-Aboriginal people. So with white followers and anybody that comes to this continent, you know, I think, you know, those early times that really, really shaped um, <clears throat> um, the identity of who we are today. Um, so it's important that we tell these stories to tell a part of the history uh, that is unknown and that isn't that that is for for a very long period of time hasn't been in the history books. Um, so without further ado, I'd like to introduce my uh, second guest uh, on uh, the Frontier War Stories. Brother, just before we start, can I get you to tell us your name, your mob, and where you're from? Yeah, um, my name's Tianji Brown. Um, I'm from, well, I was born in Tassie, but my mob is from pretty much everywhere. I'm uh, up, up North Queensland. My mum's from uh, from up Cohen. She was actually born in Cohen and grew up in Cohen. I even lived and went to school in Cohen when I was younger. And um and used to live in Cairns in, in that in that way. But um Umpala, Kanju and Kuku Yalanji is my mother's country yeah, up in mm -hmm. Panor. And then on my father's side, because I did it the other way around, mum I'll be in trouble. But I've got to do mother's country first and then father's. Um so father's country in Victoria, we have Bunarong Mob, um in the near the Wilson's Promontory in right near in Melbourne there. And over in Tassie we got up in the northeast. Because this is the the story of the northeast, unfortunately. We only really come from the northeast because of the history that happened there. Um, Pu'uwai, Plaramamina, um, people in from the northeast. So that's the, the First Nations names. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, first and foremost, yeah, thank you for making some time to come on uh, the podcast and have a yarn with us, brother. Um, and just for for the mob listening to, um, you work in one of the museums down there. Yeah, so I work at the Tasmanian Museum and Art Gallery as the Aboriginal Learning Facilitator or ALF, as we call it, which, you know, my job is essentially just to facilitate learning for all non-Aboriginal people about Aboriginal culture and history, about kind of what happened, what occurred. And, and our main job is just dealing with mis misconceptions, just undoing all the stuff that's been heaped into people's minds, mm. taught to them by their parents, by their grandparents, by school, by society. It's, you know, that's like 80% of my job, just undoing all of that mm. and just making them look at it and go, you know, is that realistic? Really? Yeah. Just give, make people use their common sense, actually thinking about a lot of those things that they're told about our culture. Oh, that would be sort of a good way to kick off our conversation uh, in terms of, you know, uh, the frontier wars down in Tasmania. Um, 
Um, could you sort of tell us about the relationship um, of blackfellas down in Tasmania um, and how settlers uh, and Europeans sort of arrived um, and started using labels? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so it's actually a really good story to just talk about, you know, like, because I always get to the spiritual side of, you know, language, culture, um, talking, communication. Language itself is, you know, it's creation. You know, you, you talk, you say move something from there and I'll pick some, I'll move something from one place to another. It's, it's, it's the way you communicate to, to change everything in, around us. And so the old people, we had nine distinctive nations in Tasmania alone. We had 12 to 14 languages within, within, the, within the entire island. So when you understand, most people would have spoken maybe three, four languages each. When you understand neurologically, that means their brain system is different. They, they perceive the world differently. So when the Europeans came in with only one language, the British mainly, they, the one, they had a worldview where it was just a very much a one language worldview. They don't, they didn't, and they didn't learn our culture. They didn't learn our language, and so they never got our perspective. There's actually no instance anywhere for, uh, for anybody to learning the, uh, any of the First Nations languages of Tasmania in, in the Black War. And there's one man, George Augustus Robinson, who learns bits and pieces. But there's nobody who learns it completely. But all the Aboriginal people, all the old people of Tasmania, learn English like that because mm. we could speak three, four languages. So to learn another one was easy. We already know that about neurology now, that if you know more, you can pick up more easy. Mm. And so when you understand that we were highly communicative people and communicating and respecting communication was something that was so important to us. And, and the concept of country. The concept of country is completely different. Our country... It's not just the land itself. It's the, the spiritual connection to the land. It's the economics of all the animals in the land, all the trees and all the, um, the plants and bush foods. It's the whole perception of the country as a, as a circle. And the Europeans who came here just saw country as this very simple thing. And so they couldn't understand that when they came here, we allowed them in peace to come here. You know, you can survive a bit. You can sit on our country and you can enjoy it. But we expect you to go off back to your country. Because every single person, every being has their own country. They've got to care for and look after. Our, that was our worldview. And so we thought that. And so if we're sitting and thinking, you know, oh, these mob eventually, they're going to go off someday back to their country where they're meant to be. But, you know, 20 years goes by, it's like they're not leaving and they want to stay here and they're, they're fighting us and they're killing us on their own country. Then we started to, it was actually going against our fundamental belief system, which we mm -hmm. believe is the mother. And we've got to care for her. And we mm -hmm. believe that everybody's got that view. But what, these people came across the water who didn't see the world in that way. They saw it as the earth is their God-given right, so they can utilise it and take advantage of it as they see fit. So because of that, those people really, really clashed across the whole of Australia. Van mm. Diemen's Land was very kind of early on part of that part of the story of, of mm. kind of brutal, and that's where a big part of it is. And I'm I'm going to show you a book which is very, very relevant to this. Um, it's actually called. Where is it? Uh, mainly because we'll, we'll be just putting the audio up. Just uh, let let us know what the book is called. Um, yeah. who, it's, who it's by and, you know, the, uh, where to find it. It's called The Pakana Voice by a, uh, Dr. Ian Browanowski. And it's essentially kind of, it's, it's based from the perspective of a, a Englishman who's a war, war reporter who comes to Van Diemen's Land in the middle of the Black War. And he, it's, a, it's a kind of fantasy story heaped with heaps of history and where he falls in love with an Aboriginal woman as he's going around watching as a war correspondent watching the war. And, and talking to it from both perspectives. And the main thing it touches on, and one of the main components it really touches on, which is powerful in this instance, is propaganda. 
and how language was used and how the way mm. they used propaganda to make people perceive Aboriginal people as lesser. All the way even to today, that's still going on two centuries later. Propaganda mm. and the media and language itself is still used to make people perceive Aboriginal people as lesser. And you can see it happening, you know, just go on anybody Facebook comment section or wherever you go. It's an ongoing thing that's still happening. And um, that book touches on quite a bit of propaganda. And the reason why you can define it as that is because it's when one of the first places on earth, if not the first, where the newspapers, the media, actually become a private organisation. It's separate from the government. So no longer had to just tell government perspectives. It could tell the private perspectives of a, a wealthy landholder. Or, you know, it could tell whatever it kind of wanted the, the people in the, in the society. And so that's where you see a lot of different kind of stories and lines coming out of propaganda mm. because we've got private landholders wanting Aboriginal people removed off the land, mm. you know, and that's mm. where you get savages and, you know, it's our God-given right to hunt down all of them until there's, you know, mm. none left, that kind of stuff. Mm. You get quotes like that happening because of these perspectives. You, you, you raised interesting points there. Um, um, you kept referring to it as Van Diemen's land. Um, lots of people may or may not know, um, you know, what, what you what you are when what you're meaning when you're referring to um, what is now known as Tasmania as Van Diemen's Land. Yeah, so um, so the story of Van Diemen's Land, and it's an interesting story because it is in a way the reason why we don't know the name is because we wanted to disappear this history. It's it's a blanketing of the history because it's such a dark story, and so that's why we kind of changed it from Van Diemen's Land. But it comes from the fact that back in 1642, Abel Tasman when he was doing cartography um, for the East India Trading Company and he came past Tasmania, he named it after his boss, who was Governor Van Diemen's, I can't remember his full name, um, of, of Jakarta of the East India Trading Company. And um, he named it after him, essentially to get like brownie points, to get kudos from his boss. That's why he named this you know, place he found. <laughs> and then, you know, it wasn't until almost over, over 140 or so years that uh, more Europeans turned up because they followed the old maps, the old Dutch East India Trading Maps. They were like, all right, we're going to follow that stuff. And then they went down to the down to the Tasmanian side of it. And that's when we had the, you know, we had Portuguese popping in there for a while. We had the, the French, the Marie de Fresne expedition um, in the in 1872 or 76. I can't remember, but it was in the 70s there somewhere. So this is before, this is before Cook in 88. Like, mm. You know, heaps of stuff going on uh, on the East Coast of Tasmania. And you know, the first death of a Tasmanian Aboriginal person happened by a European on the East Coast in the 1870s. In the 1770s, I mean. And so... All of this story that was attached to it as Van Diemen's Land, and it was known as that until, if I remember correctly, until 1856, I think, was when we changed from, and we became Tasmania. And that was named after Abel Tasman. That's why it's Tasmania. Because it's actually named after his last name. Um, yeah, that's essentially, it's just his name with an IA on the end, and that's what it becomes. Mm. And so, in honour of him. But mm. it rewrites the history. It kind of blankets it over and makes you forget about why, what, what happened when, in, when it was Van Diemen's land, it was the maximum security prison for the entire British Empire. That's mm. going to have run for all of the Aboriginal First Nations people who live on that. Because it's the only place really, to the, to, the, to the extremeness that it did, where convicts were given weapons and told, go and fix the problem. You know, hunt, you know, hunt Aboriginal mm. people. Which is pretty, like, full on. You mentioned as well on some of those first earlier voyages there were uh, conflicts as well. When did all the all the conflict uh, start? The ocean's a big thing, so you can, can't can't control the people who travel on it. And so we had a lot of private companies turning up to this new place that they found 
which was talked about as the most, you know, bountiful place you could find in the whole of the British Empire. It had more seals than you could ever find, more whales than you could ever find. The whole east coast of Tasmania, they called it, the Europeans when they went past there, Oyster Bay. Mm. They even had American sealers came all the way from America and even got in like little skirmishes slightly with a few of the English and kind of Scottish-Irish sealers up in the, in the Bass in the, in the Bass Strait. So it's like this whole other story of private companies coming, doing things to Aboriginal people. They don't come differentiate between a private European on a sealing ship or a, a, <laughs> yeah. a white so They're not going to differentiate, differentiate. And so early on, when the sealers come, they do that horrible stuff. They create bad kind of thoughts about the white fellas already, you know, bad relationships already in the community talking about it. And then once the prison starts, a few prisoners start escape and, you know, then we get um, bush rangers happening. We get bush rangers going out on the Aboriginal country, trying to survive on Aboriginal country and get away from the European authorities. But then they're going on to Aboriginal land and breaking Aboriginal law. And then they, you know, kill Aboriginal people, steal Aboriginal women. And so you see this other story of outlaws actually creating really poor relationships just with black people in general. So then when the government tries to remedy it, we're all like, nah, we don't want to talk to none of you. We're done with you at all. And so that's why it does pick up to, you know, it gets, it's a serious war. And the, the sheer volume of tactics, and they can be described as guerrilla warfare throughout what is known as the Black War. It does get very, very violent. And like, it wasn't just the, and, and you can't even just define it as a war because, you know, it was innocence. It was innocence on both sides. It was, you know, innocent Europeans who were dying, innocent Aboriginal women and children who were dying. But it's just how evil it got at the end of the war because it got to the point where they were paying people for bounties of Aboriginal people's heads. And that's like, mm. it gets, it, at the beginning, it was just about getting people off the land. But by the end, it was like, well, that's just, we want them finished. We want them done. Can you tell us about when did they sort of set up and when was it sort of, yeah, this is the colony? And then how long after that were, did the Black War start or was it sort of something immediate? No, that's, that's a really good question, just to give the timeline. So, um, 1804 is essentially when the, the colony starts, it does. Um, and there's so there's an 1804 colony in Hobart, and then there's another colony set up, um, like another town set up in Georgetown, up in the very north part of Tasmania there is. And it's, the Black War doesn't start until 1820, essentially. Like, all the conflict doesn't start getting up. And then mm. the official war is 1828. But that's, you know, it's 16, 16 years they've kind of been milling around, just setting up the colony. Um, you know, by that time, 16 years, that's the first generation of somebody being born mm. right there, you know? He's ready for war. A 16-year-old can fight in a war. So, you know, we've got the first colonists, the first generation of colonists who were born in that first year could, in theory, you know. So you can mm. see the first couple of years, we have them, by the time the 1820s comes, those are young men. Mm. So they, you know, and they're Tasmanians. They're like, we're, we're from Van Diemen's land. You know, this is, our, this is the place we're born. So they... Mm. I guess at this time in the conversation and in the timeline, I guess we're sort of here having a conversation now about the Black Walls. Um, are there central figures or are there sort of central clans and tribes that are sort of, you know, heading up these sort of um, uh, uh, um, fighting back? Yeah, absolutely. So by the time the 1820s is happening, it gets pretty damn serious. And just to give you an understanding of the country before we get into it, we've got to understand... The way we perceive our country now, the, when we go around Tassie or go around here in Australia, that is not the country of two centuries ago. It's not even the same world. Definitely. It's not even the same ants after time of the country, anything. We cannot perceive it. If our old people turned up today and saw the way the world looked, they would probably burst into tears, seeing how what's happened to our country, how it's been destroyed. Because then when you hear the colonial stories, and they talk about, they're talking wonder, in wonder, they're like, we've kind of turned up to a land that's like, you know, it's like the Garden <coughs> of Eden. Beautiful. It's like nothing we've ever found. Everywhere you go, there's perfect little roadways walking through the forests and there's 
there's berries, bushberries um, uh, everywhere. There's native food everywhere you go. It's just the most abundant. They were saying it was the most beautiful land. And the, they got a messenger to run from the Hobart colony in the southern Tasmania, the southern part of Van Dam's land, all the way to Georgetown, the very north part. And they expected it to take, you know, over two weeks. He did it in eight days. And they're like, how the hell did you do it in eight days? And he said, I just followed the road. There was just a huge big pathway straight through the center of Tasmania. I just followed it. He's like, there's just a pathway, a grass pathway all the mm. way through. Actual highways and roads of Tasmania today were just built over all the old, old Aboriginal tracks. I mean, everywhere along the whole country it is. And so you know, it, it just gets troubling because of that. And because of these roads, because they could access these huge big grasslands, that's where conflicts happen. So as mm. they, people start getting, expanding more and more out in the further regions around Van Diemen's land in the 1820s, it gets more and more violent. And that's where we see um, Aboriginal people burning down farms and farmsteads and homesteads, burning down fences to try and drive Europeans who have now come and built farms in their, on their country to try and drive them out of their lands. And the big part to make is those Aboriginal people were out there that were resistance fighting. A lot of them were resistance fighting against shepherds, against shepherd, like private shepherd companies, sheep and wool companies. And we've got to understand that that's the difference is there were those private companies, then there's the government. And the government tend to be a little bit nicer, almost, to be honest. You know? you know, They at least had their rule books of, oh, we shouldn't be killing them because underneath our laws, they become native citizens. You know, The private mm. companies were like, oh, well, we need them out of the way, so we'll get them out of the way. And mm. so that's why you see the way they each had different rule books. Um, mm. And the reason why it gets kind of quite interesting when you talk about the Tassie story is because it was Aboriginal people having to defend themselves on their own accords. And you can see even uh, the, the women, uh, the person we talked about before, before we started recording, Walia, uh, for mm-hmm. example, she was so, so powerful and strong because the hardship she would have went through, stolen as a little girl, was taught how to use a musket, taught how to you know, work on the whaling ships, which was very, very tough. Once she escaped from them, joined a group of Aboriginal people, trained them how to use muskets, and then, you know, became a resistance fighter, attacking and uh, having interactions with different um, towns and, and fighting them until she was captured and then exiled on an island by herself, which I think would have been the most horrible thing whatsoever. You know, you grow up as you knowing your culture, you meant to be around people, and then you literally are put on an island until she just dies of, uh, I think, the flu eventually from just being yeah, and being alone. You know, two, I think she survived for almost two years on that island by herself on the west coast of Tasmania, which is like the worst, most horrible condition you could ever imagine. And she mm. survived almost that being prisoner. And that's in, you know, in the middle of the, the fighting of the war. And that's just Wallia. Um, there's another man called Kikitapula, who's from the east coast of Tasmania, from a, an island called, the European name for it is a Mariah Island. It is. Um, but the Aboriginal name is Wukuluwikiwaina. That's the, on, on the east coast. And um, that's a part of the, oh, I'm trying to remember. Oyster, what is commonly known as the Oyster Bay Nation. It is commonly known as the Oyster Bay Nation on the east coast of Tassie. And um, Kikitapula was a part of the Teardami people who lived on that island, Mariah Island, the Teardami, were part of the Teardami, so it's the Teardami Nation, and Teardami was the people who lived on that island. And um, he was taken from there when he was a little boy, around about 10 years old, stolen mm-hmm. and forced into the foster care system in Hobart, in Hobart Town, and given to two European colonial parents who were called Sarah and Tom Birch. And they called this little boy Black Tom. Um, he became known as Black Tom or, or even just Tom Birch himself. And uh, he was taught how to read and how to write. He could speak perfect English. And, um, what was the, and the most important thing was he was baptised as a Christian. And he was the earliest person 
in the whole of the history in Lonely Island to be baptized at that point. He was. And so it means that um, when he finally, at the age of, I think, 21 or 22, he ran away from his European family. He'd lived with them for about yeah, 11, 12 years. And he runs away and joins back up with Aboriginal people. And when they capture him, because they're doing some instances, he won. Imagine how weird it would be all of a sudden this black man starts talking to you in perfect English. Going, you can't be doing this to me. I'm, you know, I'm a Christian. So one, they would never actually bring him in and punish him because he had rights as a Christian. Because of his rights, he could get up in a court of law and what he had to say had to be written down. And so that's why whenever they captured him, they released him because they didn't want him being able to, the things he had to say have to be said because it would have been too, too bad. And so he just always would be released and you know, eventually he died um, of influenza. I think when in his like early early thirties he he does, and that's Kiki the Puller. And there's even another story of another Aboriginal man. I can't remember his name. He's uh walking up and he's giving himself up. But what he's doing is as he's walking, he's actually got a stick, uh, not a stick, a spear stuck between his toes, and as he's sneaking like that there, and then um pretending to surrender, he quickly flicks his the spear up into his hand, like just flicks it up into his hand and spears the the person really quickly. So it's like one of those stories of like um. Uh, you know, one of those interactions of a, of a quick fight where an Aboriginal person was about to be captured and he quickly got out of it by doing this trick where we had like a, a tactic where you'd carry, you'd pretend to surrender and you'd drag a spear with your toe along the ground in the grass. They couldn't see it and you quickly pull it up. So like, yeah, different guerrilla warfare techniques. They talk about early in the colony, um, in mm-hmm. some of the stories to read about how, you know, for three days, there'll be no, you won't see anybody. And then the moment... The, the the axes over here and the muskets there, all of a sudden, like, five blackfellas pop up out of nowhere and just, boom, attack the attack the, the house or attack the town. But we just had extreme, like, reconnaissance. We're just watching, like, eagles. For that moment, that exact moment we need to attack. And that's when we got to into our tactics. When I just when I was reading the book, because I used to read a lot of military history and I've, I've read a lot of history myself and a lot of um, strategy, I was kind of reading the books about it and I was just going, wow, it's like... It's like they had some kind of martial arts that they were applying to how they fought the British because they were doing it in a certain well-thought-out way, just the way from, from the way I saw the Europeans reading it. I was just my head going, wow. What was sort of happening at the back end of the Black Walls? Um, you know, lots of the mob were being captured and sort of enforced isolation. Um, what, was, yeah, what was happening towards the back end? Yeah, that's it. So there was... I like to bring it into today by just relating these things to relevant things we Definitely. know, which I call them offshore processing centres <coughs> or <laughs> missions, missions, <laughs> missions or reserves. But but they started it with us first, didn't they? Um, mm. And they started putting us in, and separating us from everybody else. And the first one was on Bruny Island in the late eighteen twenties. It was um, they made a, a mission there where they put about thirty or so people. I think it was thirty two uh, Aboriginal people there. But back then. Nobody knew about germs. Europeans didn't know about germs or the cough. Old people didn't. So they're putting, well, we did because we knew about smoking things. And actually, we actually did to some degree know about bad spirits or bad things. And some of it's just germs, but we knew to smoke certain things, eucalypt or tea tree, which has properties that gets rid of stuff. And they were putting people who they captured into rooms with bars on the wall, uh, bars on the windows. So, and they put a sick person in with healthy people. All of a sudden, mm. all the people get sick, they all die. We haven't got the immunity to deal with it, they all die. And so the first, offshore prison on Bruny Island, every single person died who was put there. Uh, it was complete failure. And, I, and so scratching the head, they were like, well, we built another one. And that was at the end of the war. So there was the Black War that went for four years, 1828, 1832. And at the end of that 32, at, at the end of 32, um, 
Walk to George, uh, not Walk to George Arthur, um, George Augustus Robinson had been doing his friendly mission where he mm. goes around all around Tassie talking to people saying, you know, you should come to me. I can take you to a place where you can be safe while this war's gone on and you can come back to your, your land after this has happened, after it's all died down. A promise that was never kept to. And um, around about 300 or so Aboriginal people were taken to that prison or to the mission or the reserve and it's called Waibalena. And Waibalena means black man's houses. It does. And it's actually um, on Flinders Island and it's out on a, on a bay, on a point way out in the middle of pretty remote it is. And that's where uh, those 300 Aboriginal people were taken to. They weren't allowed to, you know, speak their own language. They had to speak English. Um, weren't allowed to go and get their own cultural foods, you know. Weren't allowed to go and get kangaroo or wallaby or get some mussels or oysters. Had to eat European foods because this is a mission. It's the point of a missionary is to bring them into Christianity. So mm. they've got to be eating Christian foods. They must be eating salted meat and bread and flour. They must eat sugar. They must eat. Um, they must speak English. And if not, they get punished. They must go to church on Sunday. They can't do their dances, their crobberies. They must do this. And so psychologically, you can see how that's going to affect somebody. Also, the fact that these people are the survivors of their whole culture. Everybody they know, their whole family has been murdered. All of their country has been destroyed and taken from them. Psychologically, these people are broken. So we've got to understand when somebody's psychologically like this, their immune system goes down. And so when your immune system goes down, they get really, really sick really fast. And so unfortunately, only 47 people survived that prison. So out of 300, over, you know, all those people died, unfortunately, um, because of, of the disease and just the, amount, the mistreatment. They talk about how mm. Uh, poorly people were treated there by, you know, some of the, the missions masters. Now, sometimes they had a really good person who was really good. Please, can we have him back? Because the person we've got now is horrible and cruel. How important, I guess, do you see your role as an educator how to tell uh, this part of history? Honest, honest to God, I think it's... Because for me, I can say to these kids, who are, I can say to kids from the age of seven to the age of 18 and say, you're about to learn something. I'm going to teach you in the next hour. That I, I did 12 years of school. And I didn't mm. learn minutes of what you're about to learn. Mm. You know, how the fact is they're actually getting truth whilst my generation, and I'm, they look at me going, but you're only like a little bit older than us. How come you didn't learn this? And I'm going, yeah. Think about this. I didn't learn it. Generations before me hardly learned anything. Or what we did learn, we learned a bullshit version of it. We learned a version that was the saviour version of, oh, they were, you know, we saved them and made them our citizens so they could bring them into our society so they didn't have to be savages. That's the perspective we were taught when we were in school, you know? So my job is to teach the kids a realer, more truer, unbiased perspective and make them just look at with their own morals and ethics. Because I found a long time ago that kids have much better morals and ethics than we do. And they can actually just go, you tell them a story and they go, that's horrible. You shouldn't do that to another human being. And I'm like, yeah, you shouldn't, should you? And the kids agree with me and they go, the kids can actually see this because they've got better morals and ethics. So quite often I talk to the kids, you know, go and tell your parents this teach your teach the older generations because the thing is you're a better version than them that's the whole point of the next generations is we're meant to make better versions of ourselves we're mm-hmm. meant to heap more knowledge of them so they may they can make a better society for all of us that's the point of, of every generation is to make a better version of all of us and so mm-hmm. that's why i heap all this knowledge into these youngins to say if you just want to change the future it is going to be used and that's why i'm heaping all this into them to help them understand the way our country used to be because it's I wasn't taught, taught the truth. And if I was taught the truth, I feel I would perceive myself mentally as, as different, you know? Because mm. in society, because we're of a similar age back, in the society we grew up in, trust me, you didn't, uh, society didn't uh, make you feel good as an Aboriginal person. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> Definitely true. not. It doesn't since yeah. today. Um, so 
So, and that's about change. That's why I want to be, I want to create a future where if I do have kids 20 years in the future, they're not going to be here, here and, ah, there's no black fellas in Tassie. We killed all those. Mm. You know, my great granddad told us stories about that. You know, I've heard that stuff myself. I've had people mm. go, but oh, Tasmanian Aboriginal, they're all dead. You know, I've heard people say that to me since I was a little boy. So I want to create a future where that doesn't happen. They're mm. talking about the genocide of a whole race of people who has you say to a child. You know, I want to create a culture in the future where we can actually be more human, more nicer and more emphatic and just actually communicate better. Because because that's the way the old people lived and that's the old law. Mm, that's mm, the way the law that yes. Definitely, definitely, brother. Um, well, just in wrapping up as well, just want to say thanks, you know, for having a chat with us, uh, or you with myself on Frontier Wall Stories to have a chat about uh, the Black Wars and also how Van Diemen's Land came about, that name before it was called Tasmania as well, and also, you know, giving us sort of these other, you know, history lessons on what happened uh, down that way with the mob down there as well. No, thank you very much, bro. It was bloody good to talk and good to chat. I'll probably, I'm going to leave you on one positive because I know there's one good thing. And it was what it was, was it was actually a spear throwing competition that the colonial people set up. They wanted to test. They got us to, they got um, New South Wales mob and they got Tasmanian mob and they got us to throw it. Because have you seen this, the length of the spears in Tassie? They're about six nah. metres long. Yeah, yeah. Six long. Like that's an <laughs> average four to six metres. And you hold mm. the thing up and you're like, how am I meant to throw this thing? But then they tell this, this story and they say, one of the old people, they, they, set, up a, they set up a door frame out in the middle of a and they set up about, I think it was, they set up. And they got the New South Wales, because they, the New South Wales mob were down here because they were using, because that's something we didn't mention, but black trackers we used in Tassie as well. They brought mob mm. down here to hunt Van Damme. But you know, the only way to catch another black person is use another black person. That's they they figured yeah. that. So they brought those mob down and they set up an exhibition competition between throwing the spears, New South Wales style spears. And then Tassie, and ours were like, you know, two metres longer because the, We've been stuck on an island and it's just the way our spears have been for a very long time because of mm. our isolation. That's our style, the way we do it. And they tested it at the 70 foot and the, the colonial writer said, he said the, the trackers, their spears fell short. But this one man's, he said it went through, went through the door frame. And then he said, no, 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 that's just distance. I'll show you accuracy. He went and got another spear. He stabbed in the ground. And he put a crayfish on the spear and he walked back to 70 foot. He grabbed three spears and he held them in his hand, all three at once. And then he quickly turn and when he did it threw all three spears at once so they're all in the air at the one time and two spears stab into the crayfish one spear lands beside it and he just turns around and looks at them like that That's just pointing out there he's just like we, there may be big spears and you may not think we can throw them but this is the accuracy we can do it with so just uh, when you pick it up you go that how the hell was that thing even usable it's it's confusing as anything it is so that's probably the one of the positive stories is is, is hearing about how um some of the, the just the physical capabilities, and when you look at this, the pictures of a lot of the old people from the whole of Australia, they're almost super bloody human. Mm, you mm, look at them, huge, oh, we got, we got seven year olds ripped with bloody 10 packs. No, absolutely, but it was beautiful to come and have a chat and just talk about something I haven't had an opportunity while we've been in this corona time, been bloody bored just doing nothing else. So it was good yeah. to have a chat yeah. and talk about passionate about, and you know, that's something it. that's important. It's this history. Whether it's in Tassie, whether it's across Australia, it's shaped every person who, who calls himself an Australian. It has, and it's a, it's a part of all of us. So it's something we all need to touch on. History just isn't in the past. It, uh, it very much comes forward, and we need to understand that correlation, that it always, it always uh, changes the future.